good evening, everyone, and turn and invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 14, if you would. That will be pretty much the text for our study. We'll be looking at some other stuff, some background information that before we uh, come back to Joshua 14. But this will be the first passage that we'll be reading together tonight. So grateful for your presence. Uh, it's a Friday evening, the end of a week. I'm sure for those of you who work through the week, it's probably nice to get to Friday night, a little bit relaxing. And uh, so we look forward to a weekend of study together and hope that as we conclude this evening, uh, that you'll be benefited by the things that we're going to be talking about. Uh, as we've been making our way through this weekend, keeping in keeping with your year-long theme, that is uh, the seasons of life, we're, we're talking mostly about the fall and the winter of life. And when it comes to our walk with God, it, it really is not so much how it starts that matters, but how you finish. That, that rare is the one who refuses to hit the, the cruise control button in their later years. That how many are content to just sort of coast their way across the finish line. And obviously finishing strong doesn't mean that, uh, that we're going to finish without a blemish, that we're somehow going to be able to achieve perfection. We understand that's simply not possible. But also we're not going to finish strong because of our own strength, our own resolve, our own wisdom and courage and perseverance. If we finish strong, it's going to be because we have tapped into the one who possesses ultimate strength, limitless wisdom, and infinite courage. I want you to stop as we sort of get started this morning. Stop in, not this morning, this evening. That'd be a long day if it is the morning. As we start this evening, I want you to think about people in the Bible that you would say finished strong. There's not a lot of them, is there? We could point to people who, who sort of finished badly. They were kind of running downhill at a pretty quick rate in their latter years. And my mind goes to people like Lot and Gideon, and Eli, and Saul, and Solomon, and Demas. And then there would be others that would go sort of into the so-so category. Uh, they didn't, weren't able to do all that they could have or should have done, sometimes because of negative elements in their past that, that lingered and thus hindered their, their walk with God in some ways. And I think of men like Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah and David, I think, would fit into that category as well. When we talk about finishing well or finishing strong, what we're talking about is someone who is strong in their walk with God at the end of their lives, that there's not been this, this major incident that's happened in the middle of their life that sort of derailed them. Uh, they are still active, they're still striving to grow closer to God, and, and, and I think of men like Joseph and Samuel and Elijah and Daniel, men like Abraham, who it is said of him in Genesis 25 and verse 8 that Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life. Moses, Deuteronomy 34 and verse 7, although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim nor his vigor abated. Joshua would certainly figure into that list, wouldn't he? 
The servant of the Lord, according to Joshua 24, verse 29 through 31, he died being 110 years old. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all of the days of the elders who survived. Joshua, what incredible testament to Joshua's influence. And it wasn't just while he was alive and then he died and then things fell apart, but even the elders that survived him, his influence on them continued to be felt for years forward. Paul would fit into that category in 2 Timothy 4 and verses 7 and 8. And we'll talk a little bit more actually about Paul, a little different view of Paul tomorrow night in the latter portion of 2 Timothy chapter 4. But in verses 7 and 8, he says, The time of my departure is come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. But there's one man who I think is also well-deserved of being added to that finishing strong list. And it's a brief account. It's tucked away in sort of a remote corner of the book of Joshua and really, admittedly, a rather bland section. It is about, uh, this is on the verge of them allotting the tribes different pieces of land. It's not, it's not the most exciting reading that you're going to engage in, but, but it's, it's tucked in there as well. We know him, of course, as the faithful spy, Caleb. But here's a man who finished strong. That at 85 years of age, he was still refusing to do just enough to get by. He refused to shift his life into cruise control and just sort of coast across the finish line coming down the home stretch. He refused to retire, if you will, from his spiritual activities. And so with your Bibles open, hopefully to Joshua chapter 14, let's begin our reading here in verse 6. Joshua chapter 14 and verse 6, uh, we find that the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, the Kezanite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear, but I followed the Lord my God fully. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot is trodden will be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God fully. Now behold, the Lord has let me live just as he spoke these 45 years from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses when Israel walked in the wilderness, and now behold, I am 85 years old today. I'm still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now for war and for going out and coming in. Now then give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day that the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me and I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. So Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, until this day, because he followed the Lord God, the God of Israel, fully. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, for Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. Then the land had rest from war. Now before we get to the text here, I, I want us to do a, a little bit of background to sort of set this up. 
And I want us to, to understand his previous demonstration of faith. We first are introduced to Caleb back in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. In fact, when you think about Caleb, this is probably the one thing that we remember or know most about him. The nation of Israel, and I invite you to turn, by the way, back to Numbers chapter 13. Uh, the nation of Israel, they have left Egypt. They have arrived on the edge of the promised land at a place known as Kadesh Barnea. And the decision is there made that they're going to send 12 men in to spy out the land, one man from each tribe. And, and according to chapter 13 and verse 2, you'll notice that each man is described here as being a leader. In other words, these are men who to at least some extent have already proven themselves. These are not rookies. These are seasoned veterans. These are not wannabes. These are not has-beens. These, these guys are not members of Israel's third string. These men are the best and the brightest. They have proven track records. This is Israel's A-team. And yet, those of us who are familiar with the story understand that out of these 12 men, only two of them will finish strong. Twelve men come back to the camp and they are enthused. They, they speak in glowing terms about the things that they have seen and witnessed, the land and its produce. And yet ten of them will faithlessly succumb to intimidation and fear in regard to the land's inhabitants. And so in chapter 13, let's pick up our reading here in verse 27. In chapter 13 of Numbers in verse 27, thus they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, the cities are fortified and very large, and moreover we saw the descendants of Anak there. Plug that little piece of information into your mind. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites are living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Skip down to chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. What we find is that at the beginning of chapter 13, that on the outside, these men looked great. But when push came to shove, it is what's on the inside that fails. And in the process, they're going to take down an entire generation of people. It could be said that these ten men, along with the entire nation of Israel, they started out strong. They had a great start coming out of Egypt, but they will fail to finish strong. The word that Caleb brought back was, as he testified in chapter 14 of Joshua, according to his heart. In other words, he's not coming back looking to tell Moses what he wants to hear. He's not looking to convey a message that is more palatable to the people of Israel. Instead, he says what's in his heart, and he and Joshua stand alone amid almost universal panic. Ten men, they see great fear when they look at the enemies. But two men have great trust in God. Two men see giants, 
Two men see God's power. Two men see fortified cities that are, that are fortified to heaven. Two men see those same cities reduced to rubble. Two men see a dreaded enemy. Two men see a defeated foe. Finishing strong is difficult. That's why it doesn't happen very often. But what happens to these spies, they will eventually die in a plague. What happens to the faithless generation, they will eventually over the next 40 years die in the wilderness. What they prove to us is that the alternative of finishing strong is even harder and more difficult. Look at Caleb's example here in this text. Chapter 13 and verse 30. In chapter 13 of Numbers and verse 30, Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and, and said, "Why uh, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. Chapter 14, beginning in verse 6. Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the, land is, if the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Verse 24 of chapter 14. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. Verse 30 of the same chapter. Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. Verse 38 says, But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive out of those men who went to spy out the land. Understand that Caleb sees exactly the same things that all of those other men had. But rather than focus, being, uh, being focused exclusively on those things, what he has also set his mind to see and to understand is the other things that he's witnessed. The power of God in delivering them from Egypt. The provision of God as they have traveled to Mount Sinai and beyond. He has abundantly demonstrated his power and his provision and his promises up to this point in time. Caleb's not blind to the size of the enemy. He's not ignorant, ignorant in terms of the strength of their fortifications. He simply understood that if his God could do to the mighty nation of Egypt what his God had done already that these scattered tribes in the land of Canaan are going to be no match for his God. Though we're told very little about Caleb in Scripture, what is recorded testifies that he is a man of remarkable courage and faith and integrity. That neither the negative report of the other fellow spies nor the wailing of the people in the camp in chapter 14 could make him alter his counsel or falsify his report. And for that, he not only receives the praise of God, but he receives a promise. And that promise is that he is going to be preserved through the time of the wilderness wandering and that he will not only enter into the land of Canaan, but he is going to receive some of it. Had the other ten spies been like him, the conquest would have happened 40 years earlier. It would have already been done and over with. And again, he's under no delusion. He sees the sizable challenges ahead, but at the same time he sees the power and the strength of his God. 
Another interesting piece of background here is Caleb's family tree. You'll notice in our reading that he's been identified numerous times as the son of Jephunneh, but he's also identified as a Kenizzite in chapter 14 of Joshua, verse 6 and verse 14. And then in Judges chapter 1 and verse 13, he is identified there as the son of Kenaz. Kenaz is the grandson of Esau, according to Genesis 36 and verse 11. And so it seems that from a physical standpoint, he is actually connected to a clan in Edom. And if that is indeed the case, it would make the fact that he is here a leader of the tribe of Judah and that he has chosen to be that tribe's representative to be among the spies. That would be pretty remarkable, wouldn't it? That he's, he's been adopted into the tribe of Judah. He wasn't actually born into it. And there's a phrase that we read earlier in chapter 14 of Joshua in verse 14 that says this, Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb because he followed the Lord God of Israel fully. That seems like an odd statement to make if you're talking about someone who is a Jew. But it's not odd if you're talking about someone who is from Edom. And so Caleb may have been like Rahab. And that is, physically he is an outsider who because of faith became an insider. And he demonstrates to us, therefore, that faith is something that can be possessed by anyone. In fact, he had more than most in Israel. And that faith matters more than most other things. Now, whether Caleb was, uh, in fact, a physical Israelite or not may be up for debate. What I think is indisputable is that Caleb is the exact representation of what Paul would later describe as a genuine descendant of Abraham. In the book of Romans, in the book of Galatians, Paul makes the point that a genuine descendant of Abraham, it's not about physical descent. It's about faith and walking by it. Uh, the third element that we see is the silent role of Caleb that he occupies during the time of the wandering and leading up to the time of the conquest. I, there are just a handful of references to Caleb, and all of them are in connection with the faith that he demonstrates in Numbers chapters 13 and 14. And then he vanishes off the biblical record for the next 45 years. And yet even though Caleb has sort of stepped into the shadows and for all intents and purposes off of the pages of Scripture for a period of time, knowing the kind of man that he has already demonstrated himself to be in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, there's no doubt in my mind he continues to be a leader in Judah. He appears to have been a man who was every bit the spiritual equal of Joshua. In fact, he may have even eclipsed Joshua in some aspects. And when Joshua, his friend, his colleague, his fellow spy, when he is chosen and appointed to be Moses' replacement, it is not difficult at all for me to imagine that Caleb is standing right there beside his friend, that he will continue to work behind the scenes, and he will support his friend and his colleague in his important role. And so Israel crosses the Jordan. If you're familiar with the history, the layout, they, of course, first go to Jericho. They defeat that city. Then they go to Ai. They stumble a bit there. They eventually defeat that city. Then they turn their direction toward the south of Canaan. And they begin to conquer the southern. They sort of a divide and conquer approach. They conquer the southern section of Canaan. And then they turn their attention to the north. 
And battle after battle, God provides them with one victory over another. Now understand, this does not happen easily and it does not happen overnight. It is a difficult, time-consuming endeavor that will take at least five years to complete. But by the time we arrive at Joshua chapter 12 and verse 24, we're told there that Israel has defeated at least 31 different Canaanite kings. The divine plan is that together as a nation, they are going to go out and they're going to conquer the more well-fortified cities, the stronger forces, and then following the division of the land to the various tribes, then each tribe will now individually become responsible for completing the task of purging the land of the remaining Canaanites. And during those years of battle and bloodshed, surely Caleb is involved in some way. He's either engaged in the battle, or he's leading men into battle, or my opinion would be that he's engaged in both. By the time we arrive at Joshua chapter 14 and verse 1, the time has now come for the land to be divided among the tribes. And the opening verses of chapter 14 tell us that two men are going to be involved in that process. The first is a man by the name of Eliezer. He is the, uh, both the son and the successor of Aaron the high priest. And Joshua will also be involved in the allotment of land to each tribe. They're going to employ the lot, the casting of the lot, think rolling of dice, if you will, to determine the will of God as to which tribe will get what parcel of land. When you read verses 1 through 5, when you get to verse 6, and especially when you see the reference there to the sons of Judah that opens that verse, you would think in your mind that what I am now about to read is the land's dispersal to the tribes. And it's interesting that that's not where it goes. Instead, the narrative moves to a conversation that takes place between the only two men who have survived the previous generation. It's a reminder to us here that God had not only kept his threat to the faithless generation, but he kept his promise to these two men. And so picture the scene as they're getting ready to divide the land. They've, they've conquered, they've, they've sort of uh, quenched the, the main forces in Canaan. And now they're ready to divide the land among the nation of Israel. And here are two men, these aging veterans that have so much history between them. They stand side by side, surrounded at the very least by the sons of Judah. 45 years earlier, these two men had stood alone. 45 years later, these two men stand alone together. They are the sole survivors of that original generation. Now that brings us to the text. Joshua chapter 14. Here, here we see Joshua, or Caleb's resolve. And it begins by way of a reminder in verses 6 through 9. Then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephun the Kenizzite said to him, You know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses the man of God concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was forty years old when Moses the servant of the Lord sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear, but I followed the Lord my God fully. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot is trodden will be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God 
fully. Understand that almost half a century has passed. And Caleb has waited patiently. We sang the song, Wait Upon the Lord. We talk about waiting. He's waiting on the Lord. And yet he's also, he hasn't just waited patiently, he's waited actively for this moment in time. And so for 45 years, he sort of vanished off the pages of Scripture. He now makes his reappearance. He stands among his friend and his fellow ally, uh, his only ally among the spies, and he begins by relating the events that had transpired at Kadesh Barnea, the things from the past, how he had discharged his sacred responsibilities in regard to their mission, that he had feared neither the opinion of the other ten men nor the anger of the people in, in, the, in the camp, and yet sadly he acknowledges that the cowardly hearts of those who had accompanied the two of them on this mission prevailed. And fear became more easily engendered than hope. Despair was much easier to foster than courage. But Caleb took a different path. In fact, twice, he says, I have followed the Lord fully. There may be times when the course, the direction that you need to go seems unclear, that there's a question mark. On this occasion in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, Caleb understood that the path was plainly marked, that there was only one thing to be done. But you'll notice that Caleb doesn't just recall the event. He also remembers the promise that accompanied it. It was a promise that had not only been made by Moses, but had also been made by God decades earlier. Numbers chapter 14, verse 24, But my servant Caleb, because he had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. Deuteronomy 1 and verse 36. He shall see it, and to him and to his sons I will give the land on which he has set his foot, because he followed the Lord fully. The accounts in both Numbers and Deuteronomy, neither one of them speak about a specific inheritance of land. They're just general references. But Moses reminds... Man, I'll tell you what, I'm getting all my names mixed up. Caleb reminds Joshua of what Moses had said. In fact, what Moses had swore to him. Twice... Caleb himself references this trait that he had followed the Lord fully. It's a, a phrase in the Hebrew that literally it means to fill behind. And what I find interesting is that the only times that that expression is used, it's only used of two people in the entire Old Testament. Caleb is obviously one of them, and it's used of him six times in the Old Testament. The only other time that phrase is used is in reference to Solomon, and it's in the negative. Solomon did not follow the Lord his God fully. 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 6. And when you see things like that, it's as though the Holy Spirit is using this Hebrew expression to provide a marvelous example to the original readers of the Hebrew text to say, look, here is how you should be acting and he contrasts it with Solomon's tragic example of how you shouldn't be acting. It's an idiom that means that in Caleb's heart it contained nothing against God. His heart was fully, completely, totally following behind the Lord, if you will. 
That he was resolute. He was unswerving. He was unhesitatingly focused on obeying the will of God instead of his own or someone else's. And that that's what the Lord has in mind when he said of Caleb in Numbers 14 and verse 24 that Caleb has a different spirit. As Caleb traverses the desert with a generation of discontented, faithless complainers, he continued to follow the Lord fully. He continued to hold on to the promise. As he fought as a soldier in the conquest of Canaan, he continued to follow the Lord fully. He continued to hold on to the promise. He never relinquished those words. Look at his request in verse 10. Now behold, the Lord has let me live just as he spoke these 45 years from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses when Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am 85 years old today. I am still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now for war and for going out and coming in. Now then, give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day that the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me, and I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. He, he sees the fulfillment of him standing there at that moment as a part of the Lord's promise. That the Lord promised to preserve my life to this point. He says that I'm 85 years old. And he sees himself as the same person. That's interesting, isn't it? I'm still as strong as I was in the day of Moses. Now, I'm not sure I believe that. But I think what Caleb is saying here is that, look, my advancing years are not going to keep me from claiming the promise God's made to me. He made that promise 45 years ago, and I believe Caleb says that God has not only preserved the promise for me, but he's preserved me for the promise. That when most folks are even past looking to slow down or step back, Caleb is saying, look, my, my courage has not waned in half a century. I wasn't interested in retreating at Kadesh, and 45 years later, I'm still not interested in retreating now that I'm in Canaan. And then did you notice the request that he makes in verse 12? That this is some of the same area that he had spied out 45 years earlier. It was widely known to be populated with men of exceedingly large stature who lived in strongly fortified cities. Caleb says, the place that I want is the place that is populated with the fiercest, largest Canaanites. The Anakim were the sons of Anak. They were men of size. And you remember back in chapter 13 when I said, plug that away in your mind? These are the same guys that 45 years earlier had made the 10 faithless spies feel like they were grasshoppers. And yet now at the age of 85, Caleb, he's not looking to shy away from these formidable opponents. He tells Joshua, give me that land. That's the land that I want. And yet notice, his faith is not in himself. In verse 12, at the end of verse 12, he says, Perhaps the Lord will be with me and I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. I don't think the word perhaps there is doubt. I just think he's saying in essence, if the Lord wills, this is what's going to happen. He trusts in God's presence and God's power. 
And yet, he also doesn't, real, doesn't leave divine assistance as a reason for sloth or indifference. He understands that, yes, power and strength belong to God, but effort must belong to me. That, that faith, faith does not dissolve my energy, it incites it. There have been a lot of great things that have been achieved by men who were long past 65 years of age. Galileo made some of his greatest discoveries at the age of 73. John Glenn returned to space at 75. Benjamin Franklin was a framer of the Constitution of the United States at the age of 81. Polycarp, a Christian of the second century, uh, refused to deny his Lord and was burned at the stake at the age of 86. And Caleb at the age of 85 is not looking for a life of ease or leisure. He's not looking for a monetary reward. He's not looking for a relaxing inheritance on the front porch in a rocking chair. Instead, he trusted God's promise when he was young. He continues to trust that promise when he's old. And he stands ready to do battle. To take the risk that would be involved in expelling a strong and deeply entrenched enemy and that with God's help, he believes that he will be a gray-haired conqueror. He receives his reward, verses 13 through 15. So Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, until this day, because he followed the Lord God of Israel fully. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, for Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. Then the land had rest from war. Caleb makes his request, and Caleb's friend and fellow spy gives him Hebron as an inheritance. It's hard to notice the significance here, but understand this is the first piece of inheritance that's given to any Israelite west of the Jordan River. Caleb's first in line. And the city that's given to him, the writer says, was still in Caleb's family's possession at the time of this writing. The writer then makes this brief note that the previous name of Hebron was Kiriath Arba, that is the city of Arba, the town of Arba. Arba was the greatest Anakim hero. Uh, and so from a literary standpoint, you sort of have these two, I'll put air quotes around this, these two superheroes, if you will, who are about to go to battle. You have, you have uh, the Anakite Arba and you have the Canaanite Caleb and over in chapter 15 we're going to see, we'll, we won't look at that, but, but Caleb comes out the victor. And the writer tells us also that from this point forward the city is no longer going to be known for its connection to this terrifying Anakim, but rather it will be known for its connection to the faithfulness of a man who had served God fully, who had trusted God completely and who continued to do so until he drew his last breath. Now stop and think about it. How many people do you know in the fall and winter of life that are like this man? Caleb is doing some of his best work at 85. Caleb is, is demonstrating some of, the, some of his finest character at 85. We're not told a huge amount about Caleb but the things that we are told about him reveal him to be a marvelous example for us to emulate if we plan on finishing strong. Three things, and then we'll wrap up our study tonight. 
Number one, if you're going to finish strong, it requires a total devotion to God. Six times I said in the Old Testament, this phrase is used, this figure of speech is used of Caleb, that he followed the Lord fully. His courage, his conviction, his enthusiasm, his faith, they, those things weren't coincidental or accidental. They simply flowed out of his close relationship with God. And we learn from Caleb that God doesn't want him following us or following him with all of our heart part of the time or with part of our heart all of the time, but to follow him with all of our heart all of the time. And that seems to have been Caleb. And even more encouraging is if indeed he is from outside of Israel, that he's an Edomite, that someone like that can follow the Lord God of Israel fully. He was as much a man of faith when he was old as when he was young. He was as much a conqueror in his old age as he was in his youth. And it can be said, I think, fairly of Caleb that he did not coast across the finish line. He hit the tape at a full sprint. One writer said of him, this is the secret of Caleb's character. Devotion to God makes us independent of men true in the sight of God's searching eye, brave with the trust in his help and unselfish in obedience to his will. What a remarkable man. And God rewarded his faith and God still rewards faith. He, he, his total consistent loyalty establishes him as one of the most wonderful examples of what it means to genuinely walk with God by faith that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. And yet if we were to list those people in the Old Testament that we think of that, would Caleb even make the top 25? Probably not. Well, maybe now, after tonight's lesson. And number two, finishing strong involves a deep trust in God's promises. Did you notice in our text how frequently Caleb points back to and is acting upon what he said God had promised to him? You see it in verse 6. Verse 9, verse 10, and verse 12. And understand that the promises that God had made to him were not promises that were fulfilled in the course of hours or days or weeks or even months, but decades of time. Caleb wasn't a man who relied on his own strength, his own undaunted courage. If he had done that, he would have experienced the same failure that Israel had at Ai in Joshua chapter 7. Instead, he moves forward in his life trusting in God's power and God's provision, God's presence, but also God's promises. Here's a man who takes God at his word. Moses swore that to me. I'm here to collect. God promised that to me. I'm here to receive. God has given us, according to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, precious and magnificent promises. And he loves when we appreciate them and he delights when we appropriate them. And I wonder how many things do we never ask for or never claim because of our own ignorance. We just don't, we're not familiar with the promise God's made. As James says in James chapter 4 and verse 2, you, you do not have because you do not ask. And then when you do ask, James says, you ask for your own selfish motives. And then finally, finishing strong operates not with thoughts of retirement, but with resolve. Yes, Caleb's challenges come in the form of some fear.
fearsome adversaries. Ours, of course, will come in different forms, but, but they're all looking to do the same thing. And, and that is to discourage us into indifference and to inaction. To compel us to simply sort of coast our way across the finish line instead of hitting it at a full sprint. Most people who finish poorly, they don't set out to do that. That's not their goal. They wouldn't say that that's their objective. But that's how they'll finish. And many of us will probably fall into the category of so-so. That we may not have been running downhill when we hit the tape, but we could have and we should have done so much more. We could have tried so much harder. We could have walked by faith far more diligently. And then third, the third category of those who finish strong. And that's a rare breed, isn't it? But especially for those of us who are in our golden years, our final seasons, may we strive to be more like Caleb. That we're looking to hit the tape at a sprint and not on cruise control. Tonight, understand that to finish well, you have to have at least started the race. If you've never started the race, there's no way for you to fit. It can only end badly. There's no way to finish strong. And so this evening, if you've never obeyed the gospel of Jesus, we invite you tonight to begin that race of faith that the Hebrew writer talks about in chapter 12. To begin your walk with Jesus. To put him on in baptism. To leave this place a child of God, an heir of the King. And all of the blessings that are promised to us in his word become ours. If we can help you to do that this evening, there's no better, better time than right now. Begin that race and then set your sights on finishing strong. If you need to do that, come while we stand and sing the song that Sam has selected.